The results are in and the winners of the National Wheat Yield Contest have been crowned. But what truly sets the U.S.'s top wheat growers apart? That's today on Field Posts. is a DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. As the current wheat season draws to a close, DTN Progressive Farmer is taking a deeper look at the winners of the 2020 National Wheat Yield Contest, awarded by the National Wheat Foundation. DTN staff reporter Emily Unglesby joins us today to take a deep dive on how America's most bin-busting wheat farmers achieve those top yields. We'll talk management styles and varieties, population and soil, pests and water conservation, plus a careful look at weather effects and at what might be ahead for progressive grain farmers in terms of sustainability and technology, right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential more than ever to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at mydtn.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN staff reporter Emily Unglesby joins us today to give us the download on some of the top wheat producers of last year. Emily, first question, I would love to just hear a little bit more about how this story, uh, obviously the the national wheat competition itself is a story there, but, you know, doing this deep dive on, on who these farmers are and how they got there. How did that kind of get on your radar? So um, DTN Progressive Farmer started covering the National Wheat Yield Contest literally the year it started, five years ago. And we were so excited that wheat growers were going to have this opportunity because it's something that we write about for corn and soybean growers, but wheat often gets overlooked, um, especially when it comes to big yields. So we sort of jumped on the contest and worked with the organizers. And now DTM Progressive Farmer is the official media outlet for the National Wheat Yield Contest. So we get this exclusive, really early look at the winners in the fall when they're released. We write up the breaking news story about them. And then we spend all late fall and winter crafting this um, March magazine section that's just devoted to the winners, as well as each year we try to do a story that sort of zones in on or zooms in on some faction of wheat production that's related to the goals of the contest, which are roughly to help growers produce really high quality, really high yielding wheat um, that's competitive in a, you know, global market. So that's how we got here. Uh, This particular story came about because I, I noticed when we do our research for, you know, in the spring and the summer, 
that a lot of these wheat winners are doing so much work before they even put a seed in the field. There's just so much run up to growing wheat. And the ones that are really succeeding are the ones who really are just putting a lot of weight on early season management. So we decided to really um, zoom in on that and see what they're doing differently um, in the early season part of wheat management. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I want to get into, you know, kind of who the specific winners this year were, but I wonder if you could just also for folks who don't know, I didn't think to put this in my questions, but um, I'll ask it now. It's tell us a little bit about how the contest works. Is this just high yield or are there other things, you know, being measured here? Yes. So they actually have set themselves apart from other, some of the other commodity high yield contests because they have a quality component that you have to produce grade one or grade two wheat uh, before you can even qualify for any of the rankings in the wheat contest. And in addition to that sort of qualification hurdle, they also collect samples from everybody who enters their harvest entry. And those samples are sent out to a wheat quality lab that runs them through this battery of tests for protein, falling weight, um, disease, all of these measures of quality that all come back to what sort of bread, dough, end product would this wheat make. Um, So they have a really great database now of wheat practices, management practices in the results uh, of quality wheat. It's, It's actually, it's gonna be, I think, a really cool research resource um, for growers in the future that the National Wheat Foundation has collected here because of this contest. So that's pretty cool. And um, they do recognize just raw high yields, but they also have some cool categories where they look at farmers who are yielding the highest above their county average. Um, and we can get into that a little bit later, but it really opens up the contest to a much wider geographic range recognizes innovation in all sorts of different environmental and crop producing conditions. And it's, it's the only yield contest that's doing that. And I think it's, it's a really uh, cool way to get a lot of participation and recognize a lot of growers who would not necessarily be recognized in just a raw high yield um, competition. Absolutely. I think that's such an interesting part of this whole conversation because yeah, when, when we look at maybe like a corn a uh, high yield contest. Yeah. If you're not like in, you know, central Illinois or maybe on the banks, uh, a river bank in Virginia, there's, you don't really have much of a chance. <laughs> you don't. Right. And that, yeah. And that, there's cool ways to grow these crops outside of, you know, the corn belt, the soybean belt, you know, the, the, the bread baskets of the country. Yeah, absolutely. So bringing it back to, we, you know, we saw this contest had more than 400, uh, entries from almost 30 states. Give us kind of a, a, a little bit of a, a, a feel of who the farmers were that kind of took home some of these awards. Yeah, you know, it's always a pretty diverse mix. And that's one of the things I actually love about covering this is I get to talk to growers from regions that I don't always get to. Um, it's true that the Pacific Northwest region dominates some of these very top, top, top yielding um, fields, which is pretty standard. Um, So for example, this year, 
the bin busters, as they call them, which are the people who just scored the absolute highest in each of their categories. Um, let's see, Derek Free is from Moses Lake, Washington. This is a really cool region that produces a lot of um, high yielding, high quality wheat in central Washington. And uh, you have the Rudenklaus who are from Amity, Oregon, and they're in this really well watered Willamette Valley in West Central Oregon. Uh, they grow really big, big crops there. Um, Terry Wilcox is from Idaho. We've had a lot of bin buster winners from Idaho where potatoes are actually the primary crop that they focus on, but they rotate with wheat and these potato fields have a lot of leftover fertility and they just grow really big, um, beautiful wheat crops there. Uh, and the stouts who are also from Idaho. So those were the bin busters this year. And you can see that that sort of um, Northwestern corner of the country dominated. But when you get down into the first through fifth place winners in each of these categories, you've got four dry land winter wheat, irrigated winter wheat, dry land spring wheat, irrigated winter uh, spring wheat, and then the two above average categories, you start to get a really cool geographic range. Um, let's see, for example, the dryland winter wheat winners came from Kansas, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Michigan, and Idaho. I mean, you've really covered almost yeah. the whole country there. You're just missing, you know, maybe the South. Um, and it's just, it's a really cool group of people, very different growing conditions. Um, the spring wheat categories are really interesting because you sort of loop in the Dakotas and that's where they really get to shine um, those spring wheat growers up in the Dakotas and the Northern Midwest. Uh, my favorite categories are actually the above average categories though I have to say. So that's the above average dryland winter wheat and above average dryland spring wheat growers. It just gets you in touch with these farmers who are yielding so out of proportion with their neighbors. <laughs> and it's a really nice way to sort of zoom in on these kind of semi-arid regions, more marginal land, um, parts of the northern and southern Great Plains basically, where yields aren't technically as high as they are elsewhere, but farmers are doing way more with what they have, moisture and, and soil-wise. So to me, in many ways, they're the real innovators here because they're turning, you know, just a few inches of rain into really high quality wheat. For example, I wanted to highlight one of the spring wheat, the dryland spring wheat above average uh, grower was a grower named John Warwick. He's up in the Dakotas and he got seven inches of rain the whole in his, in his growing season for his spring wheat. Whoa. But because his family has been no-till since the eighties, their soil was just able to hold a lot of the moisture and he, his field yielded 160% above his county average. So they're just, Farmers doing a lot with a little. And to me, that's just kind of the story of wheat. Like it's such a, it's such a flexible, toler tolerant crop and it really meets every grower where they're at. Um, and that's a really cool part of this contest that you can showcase that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is what can get lost. You know, I, I'm thinking of uh, in other commodities, you know, where this you know, top corn uh, winners come in at like 600 bushels an acre and, 
it's it's very impressive and cool and like what great bragging rights, I suppose. But I, I think for the average farmer, it's like, OK, well, you know, I'm I may be averaging 230 or 250. And so I'm not aiming for 600. I don't really know that there's much for me to learn from someone who is <laughs> right. achieving that. But I think we and especially these um, these percentage increase awards really do give folks a chance to say, you know, maybe I should take a look at what these other farmers are doing. Maybe there's some good some something to learn from how these other farmers are operating. And you mentioned, you know, how much early season prep played into this equation for some of these farmers. Talk to me more about what is setting these farmers apart. Yeah. So it's early season prep is sort of a part of their bigger, the bigger category, which is just that they manage wheat really, really intensively. Um, It's very, I think one of the growers uh, we talked to called it sort of intentional management. Every decision has a reason behind it. And that reason has probably been researched to death <laughs> before it got to the field. So I, I think that's a really big difference. A lot of these guys treat wheat like a really high value crop and it shows. Um, they are scouting year round. They're pulling soil samples year round. They're running leaf and tissue samples during the season. They're building grids in their field so they can sort of fine tune, okay, this 20 by 20 patch of ground gets this much nitrogen because I know based on its production history that it's gonna use that all. Um, There's just a lot of precision, a lot of thinking really hard about planting population and seed type and variety. Um, And across geographies that I've mentioned, I would say this intensive management is really what, what sets these guys apart. Emily, we'll be right back with you after this quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Marketplace. Marketing is a year-round business, but it's not your only job. As you focus on field work, monitor your opportunities, and easily make an offer with help from the free DTN Ag Marketplace app. DTN Ag Marketplace facilitates end-to-end grain sales on your schedule. From your mobile device, you can easily connect to local agribusiness to view current cash bids and futures to sell your grain. Need more accountability in your marketing program? The app lets you set goals and monitor progress and enter and track inventory. Start to confidently market your crops with DTN Ag Marketplace. Download it today for free in the Apple Store. Now, back to the show. And we're back again. Joining us today is DTN's Emily Unglesby. Emily, I wonder if you could dig into that a little bit. Uh, You know, when you're looking at, I think there's always a lot of buzz, of course, for contest winners about varieties. Uh, There's always a lot of buzz around, you know, equipment or or specific practices used. Any of that kind of any patterns emerge there? Yes. You know, I actually, planting population is something that people experiment with in corn and soybeans, but I'm not sure anybody uses it as, as beautifully as these wheat growers. They, they just sort of use it like this fine instrument. They tweak it, they tune it. So it fits their exact needs. And wheat is such a great crop for this because of its tillering capacity. So each plant can turn into, you know, 10 tillers, 12, maybe just three, depending on when it's planted and how many plants are around it. Um, So you'll see a lot of wheat growers use this to their advantage. Some of them in say Kansas and Oklahoma, Texas, they don't have a lot of moisture to work with. So they will lower their planting population and that each plant then gets sort of this absolute maximum amount of resources they have. Um, But some of them have found that because the fall emerging tillers are much more productive than the spring tillers, 
even in highly fertile regions, they're lowering the populations, but planting earlier. So each plant just packs on more tillers and they ultimately get more yield with a lower population. And then there's people who actually want a field bristling with plants. I, I talked to a wheat consultant from Pennsylvania and he has learned to really stuff his fields with really high planting populations because he realized he has, he has two crops out there, the wheat, the grain, and wheat straw, which is in really high demand um, in this part of the world. So planting population, especially in wheat, is just a really versatile tool that these high yielding growers have learned to tweak and to fit, you know, to, to match their exact growing condition. And that's kind of just one, one factor that they play with, but they, they do it really well. Yeah, that's super interesting. And uh, that interesting story of, uh, about the straw and just kind of that local awareness that's required in terms of on, on the marketing side of this question, which is totally different from, I think, a lot of the agronomic considerations uh, necessary for, um, you know, success in, in on maybe the yield side. But I want to dig in. I mean, soil is the is like a word of the day in or and has been for like three years. Uh, how when you were talking to these farmers for the story was soil top of people's minds. It sounds like for maybe the no-till farmer in North Dakota, that would have been prominent, but, you know, especially as potentially we look to a drier year this year, uh, is there a lot of awareness of the potential benefits of, you know, really intensive soil care? Yes. And in fact, um, a couple of the growers mentioned that they were dedicated no-tillers and you find a lot of no-tillers among the wheat growers in part because so many of them are in semi-arid regions of the country. Um, but some of them were finding that just a tiny bit of tillage just to prepare the seed bed, like strip tilling, um, was actually sort of giving them all the advantages of no-till in the, in the sense that the soil is mostly undisturbed and they, they, may, may, they have good soil structure and they maintain and hold on to moisture, but they get that really good, clean, precise seed bed that you sometimes don't get in a heavy residue situation. And then their, their fields were really off to the races. I know Travis Freeberg, um, who was one of the above average winners has found that. So there, people are playing around um, with how to best manage their seed beds, how to, how to make their soil types work for them. Um, and yeah, that's something we definitely need to explore more, I think in, in future contest articles. Yeah, I want to talk. Uh, well, I have you uh, as one of our resident experts on this as well. You know, did especially as some of those farmers looked ahead. You know, looking back on the year that was, but also looking ahead, are there big pest pressures for wheat that folks are concerned about going into the new season? Yes, definitely. Um, especially growers in those irrigated high rainfall regions, uh, you get a lot of, you know. Crops aren't the only things that love moisture in high yielding environments. You get a lot of diseases, the head scabs, the rust, a lot of foliar diseases. Um, insects like slugs love those wet environments. Um, in the drier regions, you hear a lot of concern about um, viruses, which don't need the moisture. They just need this specific kind of grain mite that can infect the plants and, and then they can take off. So a lot of wheat growers in the contest are very, very intentional intentional about picking varieties based on their local disease and insect resistance. And um, I'm learning that a lot of these varieties have a shelf life as a result, uh, because as we know, 
bugs and diseases slowly or quickly evolve tolerance to resistant varieties. And it starts to break down and, and it sounds like the shelf life is about five to seven years. So another thing that these high yielding winners are doing is they're constantly shopping varieties. You know, they have one in the field, it's working well, but they can see it starting to break a little. They know they need something that's gonna be very rust resistant or very scab resistant. So they are always trying new ones, always working with their agronomists, with their seed dealers, with their universities, looking for the next best resistant variety. Um, and that's, that's pretty key to staying ahead of, of pests for these growers. I have to talk as well about it. that is a great segue into kind of the this conversation about sustainability. I think <laughs> as a new as a new administration transitions in at USDA and as you know there seems to be a bit of a, a sea change uh, across the country and and around the world perhaps and on some of these issues. Um, I wonder how from talking to these farmers, how are they thinking about the sustainability of their operations, of their crop mix, of wheat in particular? Is, is that something that's at the top of their mind? I think it is. Um, one of the cool things about wheat growers in this contest is I, I learned early on, this was a question that you commonly ask corn and soybean high yield growers, which is, yes, your field netted this huge number um, was it profitable? You know, what, what was your return on investment there? Because they, you are, people are throwing the kitchen sink at the crop to see what happens. And that's the cool thing about yield contests. You learn from that. Um, but I always would ask people, what was your, your return on investment? And the wheat growers, the vast majority would be sort of confused by the question and would say, well, I'm not really doing anything different on these winning fields that I don't do for all my wheat fields. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. So that I think is a little unique to the wheat contest in that these, these guys are, are using these sort of cutting edge, precise nutrient management practices across their whole fields. Um, and I don't think I ever talk as much about variable rate fertilization in interviews as I do when I interview wheat growers in this contest, such a high percentage of them are doing really intense sampling to figure out where their fertilizer is best used, when it's best used. I know one of the um, former winners from uh, Colorado, people had just done fall fertilizing for so long in his region, but he actually just stopped and was like, you know, I'm not sure where, he started realizing via soil samples that that, that fertilizer was disappearing by the time he needed it in the spring and he just stopped doing it. And now he does all of his fertilizing in the spring, which is riskier, but it's much more sustainable for him. He's not losing nearly as much nitrogen. And that's a hard switch for a grower to make, especially when there's a long history of it being done a certain way in your crop. Um, so in the terms, of, in terms of nutrient management, I think wheat growers are ahead of the curve. There is, that said, there is a lot of fungicide and insecticide use that might be described as sort of prophylactic, sort of treating fields for things that you haven't actually seen in them just because you have, you know, you know they might be coming. And that, but that is, I would say, an issue for all of agriculture that, that we need to reckon with, not just specific to wheat producers. Um, and sustainably, as far as water conservation is concerned, wheat is sort of naturally a super sustainable crop. Um, there's a reason that in this contest, the irrigated categories are among some of the smallest, the smallest ones. 
because most of the wheat grown is dry land. It just uses, you know, the rain that falls from your sky. And it is uh, just biologically one of the best crops in the world for making the most of rainfall, for hanging on during dry conditions and just making the most of an inch, you know, at grain fill. So it is by itself a sustainable crop. A lot of the growers are who grow it are in regions where you don't have endless resources. And I think the result is that wheat production is one of the most sustainable crops that we grow. Yeah, we and I think it's worth mentioning, yeah, we talked a little bit offline of about even just the fact that you know uses for wheat are a little bit different than for other major grains. And I think that also could play into if 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 you're having a broader conversation about the sustainability of grain crops in the United States, I think wheat comes out on top in a lot of those conversations as well. Definitely. Um, well, my final question I think here is just about, you know, obviously the future is very uncertain. We are not really into predictions at the moment, just because if we, you know, thinking about where we were this time last year, <laughs> predicting would have nothing predict, no predictions would have come true. Right. But um, yeah, I, you know, when these amongst these farmers, I'm curious how they are thinking about the future, how they're thinking about technology, how they're thinking about, you know, changing practices or adopting new things. Was there any patterns there in terms of how they think about those things, how they consider new investments before they make them? I think a lot of them would say the future for them is just sort of fine tuning what they do now. There are a few looking at new markets, which is which is cool, but a lot of it is just sort of taking tools that we have out there, like variable rate fertilization, like high precision irrigation, like, you know, um, really, really cutting edge breeding techniques and, and just fine tuning that to their operations. I mean, I think intensive management, giving wheat sort of the attention that we usually reserve for high value specialty crops or these high investment commodities like corn and soybeans. I think that's really the future for these guys. Um, wheat responds, it's a humble crop in a, in a way, but it responds really well to intensive management. And um, I think that's what these contest growers would say, winners would say that they are, you know, and plan to do in the future. You can read Emily's stories and find up to the minute reporting on all things crops at dtnpf.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Emily Unglesby. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you liked the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit dtn.com.